It was fitting that God for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing many children to glory should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters and saying, and he quotes from Psalm 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, quoting from Isaiah, I will put my trust in him. And again, quoting from Isaiah, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same thing so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held to slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come, in, come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people because he himself was tested by what he suffered. He is able to help those who are being tested. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let us pray. O oh, gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in thy sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and let the people say, Amen. Friends, um, I have to confess that this reading of scripture from Hebrews may seem a jarring and abrupt end to our season focus on the Christ child of Bethlehem. If you had asked yourself during the reading of the scripture, uh, how did we get from Christmas Eve to this letter? I wouldn't have blamed you for thinking so. In this passage from Hebrews, we don't see a manger, nor an innkeeper, nor donkeys, nor shepherds, nor angels proclaiming and singing the Savior's birth. Rather, the writer of Hebrews tells us of a suffering salvation pioneer and a salvation high priest called Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us of the devil's defeat and the gentle shooing away of angels into their proper place with Jesus. But what Hebrews does do is to command our full attention upon the benefit you and I receive through the work of God and Jesus. Perhaps another way to see this uh, word from Hebrews is to think of a pair of binoculars. Last week and on Christmas Eve, our scriptures uh, binoculars zoomed in on a specific place and a specific event. A manger in Bethlehem cradling the Christ child, Emmanuel, God with us. And today our scripture focus zooms out from Bethlehem 
in order to take in the widest possible scope of Jesus' time and existence with God. A wide angle scan of time before Jesus was born and working to hold all things together with God and creation to Jesus' time with us as full human beings and then to the time of Jesus' death-defeating return to God for all time. Just all time in one full scope. And thinking of all this time and work by God and Jesus, I felt prompted by a saying that we sometimes hear people say, and perhaps you can help me finish this saying, all in God's good time. All in God's good time. Now, I suppose that some of us have had uh, different interpretations and takes on this expression. Sometimes if someone is uh, late for an appointment, we might say with a little uh, charitable irritation or, or sarcasm, all in God good time. Uh, when I began to date the woman who had become my wife, I was at time waiting in the living room of her parents' home waiting for her to get ready. And I would calm down my impatience by telling myself, all in God's good time. <laughs> and when the time came to when I did see Mary Kay, I could tell that her predate preparation had far exceeded my predate preparations. <laughs> And my attitude changed from impatience to deep appreciation and to saying, wow, all in God's good time. <laughs> or another way we may have heard all in God's good time is in having a fatalistic view of God that you know whatever happens happens because God's good time is beyond our control if we can't change God's time if we can't change what happens therefore why try to do anything about something that seems beyond our control so we might say fatalistically and perhaps bitterly like an offender denied parole shaking our head in disbelief all in God's good time, all my effort to do the right thing counted for nothing, all in God's good time, get real. In January of the year that I would answer God's call to ordain ministry, I received a memorable lesson on how we perceive time. I was traveling back to Texas after having spent a year in New Zealand on a Rotary Scholarship. And I was still uncertain of my vocation direction. My flight home allowed for a two-day layover in the South Pacific Island nation of Fiji. I arrived late to the hotel and seeing a sign in the hotel lobby advertising an early morning tour of the island, I made a mental note to be sure to wake up in time to catch the tour bus. 
Yet when I did awake, I had only five minutes to get dressed and stumble down the stairs and catch the tour bus. Missing breakfast and adjusting to a new time zone, I stumbled hungrily onto the half-size school tour bus. Our driver was also the tour guide, and he cheerfully announced to all of us that we are now on Fiji time. And as we drove past the pineapple fields and the blue-green sea coast, the driver would say from time to time, if anyone wants to stop and take a look, just pull the bell cord, and I will stop. We're on Fiji time. But after 30 minutes or so, no one was pulling the bell cord. Every so often along the roadside, there would be a uh, small palm branch topped shack with a shelf full of pineapples. And when the driver again said, we're on Fiji time, my breakfast empty stomach spied another pineapple shack down the road and growled to me, it's Fiji feed me time. <laughs> I pulled the bell cord and looking somewhat surprised, the driver stopped and pulled over and I exited the center aisle and out the door to the roadside stand. All eyes on the bus was on my back as I paid a, a man with a machete to slice a fresh pineapple for my breakfast. And after what, what felt like an extended time, the machete man handed to me my freshly sliced pineapple, and I bounded back on the bus, past the driver, past the tourist, to take in my pineapple breakfast at my seat. And as the driver started the engine and got us back on the road, he said firmly, no more Fiji time. I was hungry. I needed that Fiji time to get something to eat. But the driver's sense of Fiji time quickly evaporated in order to be back on his time. I think for that driver, Fiji time did not figure in time to satisfy all the empty stomachs that might be on his bus. If I look back at that moment of Fiji time through the view of the writer of Hebrews, I think in some way God's work in Jesus revealed a whole lot of Fiji time. That is, a whole lot of all in God's good time was needed to meet the hunger, temptation, and fears of death held by we human beings. So let us return to our writer of Hebrews and follow more closely God's activity in Jesus. Uh, I think we'll find that the letter to the Hebrews, particularly in these eight verses of the second chapter, affirm the full humanity of Jesus' divinity. I want to say that again. The letter of Hebrews affirm the full humanity of Jesus' divinity. Uh, commentators of Hebrews have described a, a visual graph 
of God's activity and Jesus as some sort of a, uh, an upside-down curve, starting with Jesus with God at the left side of the graph to represent Jesus' pre-Christmas life in whom all things exist, to the curve descending downward as Jesus descends to earth to be born, to live, work, suffer, and die. And then the curve bends upward to glory as Jesus is raised from the dead and brings to glory many human beings. This is also known as a uh, descent, ascent Christology. But the writer of Hebrews did not use geometry to describe Jesus up and down and up again saving work. Rather, the writer of Hebrews uses a word to describe Jesus, a word that appears only four times in the New Testament, and all four refer only to Jesus, trailblazer or pioneer. So here's the first of two kinds of saving work by Jesus, our Savior pioneer, and the second, which we'll get to in a moment, is our Savior high priest our writer or preacher, as some commentators of Hebrews have described the author, our preacher sees in Jesus a pioneer. And not just a person who's taken a machete to the tall grass or a marked path through a difficult terrain for others to follow. No, just this Jesus is a savior pioneer who suffers every aspect of human existence, including death itself, to make us free and holy. And who are the people who follow this suffering Savior pioneer? Our preacher hears the voice of Jesus in Psalm 22, verse 22, who says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the assembly and praise you. Now, you and I might not catch this verse from Psalm 22, but I think you and I do know the first verse of Psalm 22, which Jesus said from the cross. And maybe you can even finish this verse for me. My God, my God, why hast thou... Yeah, you know it. But in the second half of Psalm 22, the people whom Jesus called brothers and sisters are those who share in his sufferings. And if we look at Psalm 22, we see an expansion of all these people whom Jesus calls brothers and sisters. And they are the poor, the sick, the dying, and those dead, those foreigners and generations yet to be born, everybody. In other words, Jesus invites all because Jesus knows us. For Jesus is not afraid to do the dirty work of becoming and being human. And Jesus, God took God's good time to get to know us. God doesn't wave a magic wand to fix us. God takes time to know our grief and sorrows, to know our hunger to know our fears, to know our deaths. Our preacher hears Jesus' voice again 
in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 18 to 17, 17 to 18, quoting, Here I am, what the children of God has given me. Here we see no sign of separation between Jesus and his humanity. And there's no separation between Jesus and our humanity. Jesus is one of us. Our flesh and blood is Jesus' flesh and blood. God and Jesus took time to live in our skin. I think this Jesus who lives in our skin can be so easily uh, glided over to get to the next part of Jesus' saving work, the, the Savior High Priest. But I want us to stop and reflect a moment. When we've been sick, injured, addicted, or in deep emotional distress, do you remember the discomfort, the hurt, the knee-jerk cry, get me out of this? Do you remember the prayers and cards of loved ones hastening our recovery? Hurry up and get well soon. Twelve years ago, when I was paralyzed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, people wanted me to get well quickly. So quickly that I suspected that my paralysis and sickness was making them feel more uncomfortable than I was with my own suffering. Our preacher of Hebrews sees Jesus who is not afraid, does not shy away from suffering, but who fully embraces and endures all that is human, including the shame of death on the cross. Why does God do that? We live in a time and age where the fear of suffering and pain is almost greater than the fear of death. We are so good at uh, medicating our pain. We don't need to suffer needlessly or the full impact of painful conditions. Yet Jesus lives with us completely and even refuses a pain-numbing drink of hyssop before dying on the cross. What's going on? Perhaps the time we spend on suffering is not just our suffering or time, but it's God's time also. As God and Jesus willingly suffers with us. In a modern sense, Jesus is our recovery sponsor who knows our temptation, who knows our fears, and who is worthy of our trust because Jesus knows the way from suffering to wholeness. Jesus does not give us a pill to chill our pain. But Jesus, through God's good time, takes the time to suffer with us and lead us toward healing salvation. As we follow our flesh and blood pioneers, Savior on the downward graph, the upward trend begins with Jesus' death and resurrection. For in truly dying and not just swooning or feigning death on the cross as some people in the preacher's audience may have believed, Jesus defeats the devil who has held the power and fear of death. Our preacher described the action of Jesus as 
liberator. Jesus frees us from our slavery to sin and death. And for our flesh, for as our flesh and blood, Jesus died and rose. So too the promise of our rising with our flesh and blood, Jesus, defeats our fear of death. Do any of us have a witness of a loved one in Christ who may have said something like, I'm not afraid to die. Jesus is with me. When John Wesley was dying, he reportedly repeated several times the phrase, the best of all is, God is with us. And Wesley repeated those words so that the last word on his lips would be a fearless testimony of Jesus living in him. Our preacher then gives a odd reference to angels, writing, For surely Jesus' concern is not with angels, but concern for those who are the children of Abraham, which includes everyone who believes in Jesus. What's going on here with angels? We like angels. We like angels in our Christmas story. Angels deliver messages from God. So why the, the shade on angels? Perhaps some in the preacher's audience had an unhealthy obsession with angels. Jesus is not an angel. Jesus was higher than the angels, yet became lower than the angels to suffer with us. Our preacher focuses our eyes on the full humanity of Jesus' divinity. Angels do not save. Jesus saves. Gently, the preacher ushers our angels to the sideline to take their proper place to stay when called upon for their service. With our attention focused again on the pioneer who saves, our, who saves us, our preacher introduces the second saving description of Jesus, a description that appears nowhere else in the New Testament. Our Savior High Priest. For in being human in all aspects except sin, our preacher sees that Jesus had to first descend to be with humanity before ascending to become a high priest, a priest who would, quote, be totally like us in order to be merciful and faithful. That is, merciful in knowing us and faithful in relating to God. It's Jesus is saying to God, look, Father, I can relate to these people. I know their temptations. I know their pain. I know their fears. And I know the sin they suffer from. With Jesus' condition of humanity fully established, our preacher now presents Jesus as being fully able to do what no other priest of the Hebrews could do. Offer himself as an atonement to God for the sins of the people. Now friends, I know this is controversial in some places, 
because we don't like to think of God needing the blood of Jesus. But the mystery, the mystery of our being one with God rests not on our solution, but upon God's own blood and Jesus. In effect, God is saying to us, look, you guys can't possibly ever save yourself. So I'm going to save you with my only one son. You'll never have to make a sacrifice to me again. If you've been climbing up a cross feeling sorry for yourself, get off of it. You are forgiven. Get living with Jesus. And not only are you forgiven, but my son, he knows your heart. He knows your struggles. And he is at my side while also being on your side. So it is that God, all in God's good time, we have a Savior pioneer who frees us from the fears of death. And we have a Savior high priest who removes our sin and is with us in our temptations in order to lead us to glory. And what is that glory? The glory of becoming a full, love-tested, love-perfected image of God. In closing, I offer one testimony from one of our 90-plus age old Lover's Lane saints who died last month, Dorothea. Eleven years ago in March of 2008, feeling grateful for her life and in a moment of life reflection, Dorothea wrote a testimony of her life. She spoke of a, a second chapter, a, a chapter that began when the kids had left the house. They were all grown and looking about for a, a change, do something different. She found a new calling, caring for people as they approached their final years of life and hospice. It was a job that meant getting dirty, requiring Dorothea to uh, clean, bathe, cook, feed, and dress folks who could not care for themselves. And yet this is what Dorothea wrote in her testimony. I feel so blessed to have known and helped so many. It is the greatest work that I have ever done, and I loved every minute of it. I believe what Dorothea and our preacher from Hebrews invites us to consider is this. The work God does in Jesus invites our participation with the pioneer Savior and Savior High Priest. There is no fatalistic theology of being helpless, sidelined observers of our fate. No. This Christology is a God in Jesus who has taken time to fully know us and fully save us. And we can live faithful lives where we can love 
Jesus' work happening in us every minute. And may so we live minute by glorious minute all in God good. Thanks be to God.